Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm with Brian Kramer today in Mexico City. Uh, Brian, of course, is the best-selling author of a number of books, including Human to Human, Shareology. He's a world-renowned marketing expert and TED speaker. And he's a very good guy as well. We were out drinking uh, mezcal last night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that should be a prerequisite for anyone I have on the show, is that <laughs> beforehand we have a, a serious evening of drinking mezcal. And I introduced you to, uh, to the red worm salt as well. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know, we, we certainly had our pre-interview interview interview if you will <laughs> uh, and, uh, and of course we're both here speaking at a conference at the moment in, in Mexico uh, but I thought one of the best places to start is uh, one of your you know, core ideas which is that we need to be more human and there's someone that myself that spends a lot of time thinking about anthropology and, and looking at human behavior yeah. uh, I was really fascinated by this concept uh, although your last book uh, certainly stirred uh, some people up uh, I think the subtitle to Human to Human was, can you remind me again, Brian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, there's no B2B business to business or there's no B2C business to consumer. It's H to H, human to human. That, that would have set a uh, cat among the semantic pigeons, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I had, uh, I had a lot of people around the world that were responding either with yes, thank you, or what the heck are you talking about? because they were B2B marketers or B2C marketers, and I was definitely challenging their, um, their position in, in, a, in, a, in an industry that's been around for a very long time. It's one of the things that puzzles me most about marketing and, and advertising in that it's such a creative industry, but we love putting things in boxes, and we love creating you know, divisions between above the line, below the line, yeah. B2C, you know, B2B, uh, but of course, we're still, as you've pointed out, still talking about human beings. Right. And humans aren't you know, neat and tidy with the way they pay attention to stuff. Yeah, and, and we can add more, more acronyms and more big <laughs> words and all kinds of things like synergy and you know, um, uh, group, uh, group uh, support and, all, and customer acquisition. And, I mean, there's all these different words that we use in marketing and Cust- customer success is, is, is one of my favorites it sounds so creepy it sounds like a some, it sounds like a metric at a cult right <laughs> yeah yeah so we use these words and they come out of you know some kind of copywriter rights at, at some point and we go well that's another thing I haven't said before on my marketing material yeah and then we adopt it and now it's a new way of saying something and so the concept behind um, human to human is really dialing it back. It's about simplifying. Right. It's about taking everything and making it understandable. Because here's what happens. I'm sure you, you say this all the time, but when you're inside of a company and you're speaking all these acronyms, I'm sure you've sat you know, inside of a company where everyone's talking in so many acronyms, they're not really even talking a real language. No. It, if you're an outsider, it's an actual like uh, a language that's foreign to all of us just like we're here in Mexico I don't speak Spanish I 
can't understand what a lot of people are saying. I feel that way sometimes inside of companies. But it's worse because it's a form. It's almost like academia. It's 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 being uh, you know obstruse to actually make people feel like they're outside. Right. Secret knowledge. Yeah. And here's the thing: like when that happens, then it translates to the language that's used externally, and people feel foreign to the product or service that's being offered. Right. It translates outward to the point where it hurts your marketing material. So, it it, hurts so your inner, inner complexity actually translates into external confusion. Right. Hmm. And it makes it complex. And so the whole idea is to pull it back and simplify. Um, once you get that, that really, that, when you look at the greatest brands and you look at what they're delivering, they're simple, right? Think of a brand that is so simple that you just get it. Are they simple because their marketing proposition is simple or they're just, they're simple because they're selling hamburgers? Mm. Yeah, it's like In-N-Out Burger, right? Right. How many things do they offer on their menu? Yeah. Well, I mean, they deliberately don't offer stuff on the menu and you have to know the secret ways of ordering it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of fun. Yeah. And that happens within companies. And, you know, there is the gamification part of it and the way that, you know, we certainly want to be a part of companies. But I think, you know, companies that we've all like reiterated time and time again, you look at Apple and you, you could probably state every single product they offer because it's very simple. Um, but then again, Amazon, not so simple. They offer more products and than <laughs> by far than Amazon ever did. But yet I would classify them as simple. Well, in a way, their, their brand simplicity is not defined by their product range. Yeah. But the fact that they have an unlimited product range. Exactly. So you don't need to know the products to know the, the core proposition. Right. The secret ingredient there that we're talking about is that to understand how to get what you want in a simple way and to state what a company actually does makes it easier for us to consume them. So a key part of humanity in that sense is simple, simplicity. Uh, but are there other aspects of humanity yeah. that we also need to focus on? Right, good question. So there's two other pillars. So right. simplicity is one. Uh, empathy is the second one. Um, a com- uh, think of a company that is really empathetic towards their customer. What comes to mind? I, I think more of negative. Yeah. <laughs> I think more of airlines. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think of the opposite of empathy. Probably not empathetic in the airline <laughs> or travel industry. Uh, right. Pretty Pretty hard to do. That's, a, that's an interesting question. Yeah, it's like somebody who really cares about their customer and really shows it. It's a hard one. I get responses sometimes like like Amazon, actually, because it's really easy to turn a product back in. Yeah. Like if you wanted to exchange a product, they're really easy. Nordstrom, you know, has that whole idea of, you know, bring your product back. We'll exchange well, I, I sometimes way. think of like, uh, like high-end luxury brands um, in the sense that they stand by their product and craftsmanship. If something goes wrong, you can bring it back to them. Yeah. Um, there's For this, life. there's yeah. this wonderful shoe brand called Baluti, and it's actually started by the son of, um, who, uh, I think, uh, the guy who runs LVMH. And they'll actually, when you, you can bring your shoes back to them anytime, and they'll restore them. Mm. It's just part of the long lifetime relationship that you build with the brand when you buy one of their products. Right. So there you I go. guess Zappos is the low-end version of that. <laughs> right. But still pretty empathetic towards yeah, our customer. absolutely. Um, so it doesn't matter, you know, at what level you're at, but you can create that empathy um, with a customer. It's possible. It's also possible to, you know, not show empathy. Um, and then the third one is, um, 
is uh, imperfection. Hmm. And imperfection is... That's very, that's very Japanese Zen of you <laughs> to include that on the list. <laughs> the Japanese I know are obsessed with imperfection. Yeah, it's... And I'm actually obsessed with the Japanese culture. That was one of my... That oh, was my, my, okay. my minor actually in college. Right. Um, random. Uh, random minor. I don't know how that came to be. But I, I, um, I believe that perfection doesn't exist. And I think that if we embrace imperfection, that is perfection. Do you mean the sense of authenticity? Um, it, it, authenticity plays a role in imperfection. I don't think it's the whole right. piece of it. Um, imperfection is when something goes wrong. Um, embracing authenticity is how you respond to it. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I am endeared towards characters like a character in a movie. If you've seen Meet the Parents with um, Ben Stiller, yeah, and he played this role called uh, Gaylord Fokker, F O C K E R for your listeners that are out there wondering who I said. <laughs> and his character in that movie was very authentic, but also imperfect. And everything he did during that film was um, extremely imperfect to the point where you loved him. You loved him so much that you were rooting him on, even though he set the roof on fire, or he uh, lost the cat, or he taught you know their daughter a bad word, or like every every single instance. <laughs> because we just, we relate to it, right? We relate to it, yeah. We relate to the imperfections of other people, and that's what connects us. So why wouldn't that be the same in a brand or a company? It, 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 should a brand show its imperfections at a aggregate level, or should it just show that it's actually a massive imperfect people behind the brand? Yes. To which? To both. <laughs> to both. Right. Why not? Yeah, yeah. Why not? Why not? Um, That's quite counterintuitive because I mean, when people, I guess, teach traditional branding, it's all about consistency and making sure the logo appears the same everywhere. Right. It's, it's all about perfection. Yeah. But can you imagine if we actually embraced the humanity within our companies? Mm. Because it is people that are running companies. If you think about a brand and you think about who's running that brand, you think about the person who's running the brand. You think, if again, we go back to Apple. If you think about Apple, right now you think Tim Cook before you thought Steve Jobs. Mm. Amazon, you think Jeff Bezos. And the list goes on and on and on. And we think about people. We're connected to people. The brand is, is, is merely a, 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 a place that connects all these people that allows us to see these uh, storylines and connect with what product or, or service we want. But the people is what makes the difference in how different that brand is. It, it, it's interesting now, though, I think, because the imperfection in brands comes not so much from what the brand does, but what people do with the brand. And, 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 you know, luxury brands have always struggled with this. Like when rappers start talking about their products in, in yeah. hip hop songs, do they embrace that? Yeah. Uh, do they allow their brand to be taken to a different level or, you know, do they stop it? Uh, fan yeah. films is another great example. Like Star Wars franchise has always right. been open to people making fan films. And yeah. I, I think Star Trek recently had an issue where they've tried to clamp down on someone making a fan film, not because it was a fan film, but because it was almost too professional. Mm. Mm-hmm. So the point when you actually start becoming more perfect is actually the point when brands get worried. Right. Exactly. It's so interesting now. We were talking before off off uh, the, the podcast here about live video. Yeah. And how live video has brought about this imperfection and fear of being perfect. Because if you pick up any live video 
Facebook video, Periscope, Snapchat, whatever, and you try to be perfect, it won't happen. And you'll never get on because of the fear of being perfect. You can't script, you can't edit, you can't do a lot of things that you can do in editing for other kinds of video. But yet it could be the one thing that differentiates you from the rest of the pack. The uh, Chewbacca lady that was on Facebook is the prime example right now for imperfection and embracing humanity, right? <laughs> I mean, how viral did that go? Because she just picked up her phone and just had a one-on-one -on -one with the camera and her fans or her friends. She's probably going to get her own TV show now. It's going to be. I mean, she set the stage high. I, I, you know, I look at that and I, I kind of feel that that's just the perfect example of randomness. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there was just some random thing that happened and randomly it got exposed to the right people who sent that viral. Right. But I'm, I'm not actually sure that proves anything except that people look at weird stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, YouTube proved that a long time ago. Yeah, right? You, you know, there's that famous experiment, I think, when you know the, the engineers at Google you know, taught the AI to, to study YouTube and the only thing it managed to recognize after, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of investment was what a cat looked like. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I think you're onto something about these new formats like, you know, Snapchat and Periscope and, and Facebook Live Video is that part of their authentic uh, nature is that they are imperfect and and people feel more empowered to create stuff on there because it doesn't need to look as polished as an Instagram post right and in fact if it does we're suspicious of it yeah yeah it, it's 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 an interesting time that we live in because of that um, you know if, if if things look like you know Ansel Adams a little too much then we're a little bit leery yeah. right now and um, we have we have ex we have accessibility to you know posting anything in real time almost too quickly now and um, from anywhere at any time. And so it becomes about, you know, the, um, the idea is that you now have to become your own, your own uh, filter of what's, you know, what's, what's right for your personal brand, what's right for your company, what's right for the moment, what do you share, did you say too much, did you say too little? Um, you know, these kinds of things are now going through our head where 10 years ago, just even 10 years ago, that no one had to worry about that. Brands are always struggling to not only keep up with the latest platform, but what the right way to communicate on it is. Uh, how, do you, how, how do you reconcile that? I mean, with these new platforms like Snapchat and um, Periscope, what is the right way for brands to appear on those platforms? Yeah, that's a good question. So Snapchat hasn't developed fast enough yet, I think, for brands to really be on, on Snapchat. Um, so specifically Snapchat, um, you know, there's a couple brands on there doing it really well. Uh, or yeah. you can pay a lot of money and have a channel. Um, most or, people, or, I don't or, think or are, create a lens, or create a lens. That's a, that's right. And um, and there's some really fun things you can do with those lenses, with the the lay the overlays. Yeah, yeah, those are great. Um, and I've done that before. But you know, there's there's some there's some interesting things that I think will come with those filters because you know, like at South by Southwest, um, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk actually bought most of South by Southwest and overlaid his book all over every every geography of South by Southwest. Now I started to think about think about that, and I'm like, well, okay, he's he's using that as a brand platform for selling his book. But what if um, over the Sony building, the what if over the Sony building, the Sam Samsung put their um, their overlay right over one of their events, 
you know, it was a uh, it was a it was a branded um, experience from their competitor. Right, know, and 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 so now all of a sudden, so like guerrilla marketing on a digital level, right? Yeah, I mean, you see, you see the backlash, you know, to things like that when uh, U two, of course, tried to distribute their album, you know, through Apple. Yeah, and, and and people weren't grateful. They were just like, "How do we delete this thing off iTunes?" Right. Yeah, um, that's an interesting thing. I mean, you look at um, a lot of people and how they. Um, how they develop their their uh, um, launch sequence, and it's different now. Hmm. You used to buy an ad on TV, and you don't do that anymore. You launch in a unique way on a unique channel, and a lot of people are testing a lot of different things to do that. Um, my book HDH would not have launched, would not have done well if it weren't for social media, right. at all, at all. It would not have. I literally stood in front of um, an audience and shared the screen that has become, if, if you Google, there's no B2B or B2C, it's human to human HTH. If you Google it, the first thing that comes up is the picture that was taken on stage when I first had it up. It was in the middle of the presentation. And when I gave that, um, it, uh, I went to the next screen and somebody asked me to go back. So I went back back a slide and somebody took a picture of me standing in front of it and that then got tweeted out. And within the next 48 hours, it got over 80 million impressions. And I literally became kind of the Chewbacca lady, if you will, of H to H. And then it, uh, it had over 2,000 bloggers within the next two weeks blogging about this new idea of simplification in our uh, in our um, had you world. written the book at that point no right so this this was the tweet that set off a set off a book basically yeah yeah within the next week I wrote a book I got think thankfully I'd been writing about it for on my blog for years before that and so I pulled it all together and I published a book self-published a book within four days <laughs> I just stayed we stayed up and just like worked on it for four straight days got it out to answer the questions that were overwhelmingly coming in on what does this mean hmm. and a, and I realized then that a blog wasn't going to answer that so we we got it out self-published it because there's no way a publisher could ever meet that demand of getting <laughs> that fast and um, and then we sold over 15,000 copies in the next little bit um, next six months and it rose you know to the top of all this stuff and the reason I say that is because it um, again happened to me because of social media and the the uh, concept resonated at the right time right place yes and people really glommed onto the idea that yeah we are still human we need to really embrace these qualities and not lose you know this as we grow into a more complicated world uh, so often whether you're a brand or you're an author you, you tend to stumble on in a sense, big questions that people want to know the answer to. It's di it's more difficult when you try to engineer that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we overthink, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so in your next book, Shareology, you really looked at the me mechanics of why and how people share things. Yeah. So here's the thing: I was working on Shareology before HTH was actually started, right. and then I set Shareology aside to work on HTH because <laughs> it be quickly became the uh, the surprise baby. Right. And so then I got back, after about a year, I got back onto the Shareology um, concept and it worked out, man, if I could have planned it better, I would have <laughs> done it exactly the way that it unfolded because um, then I was able to work on Shareology and it became the extension to it, um, how sharing powers the human economy. And um, 
and I got to really do a lot of research based upon the things that I then heard, you know, from people around the world that I was then, you know, talking to and able to like hear what their questions and what they thought about this whole concept about H to H was. And over and over, I kept hearing, um, but how do you make something go viral? How do you, how do you um, get, get, a, get a story to resonate with the right people at the right time? Um, online using social media. Yeah. What, what is social media going to be in five years? And how does this have to do with the world that we live in in a technology era where you know we have Uber and Airbnb and we're actually sharing our things, not just our our ideas. Yeah. And and I just got fascinated with all of that and really wanted to pull it all together into that book. And actually, I think I poured myself more into shareology, you know, because of the fascination of you know the the nuances of sharing, and when you think about it, it's just so psychological, right? Why, why do people share, in your view? Um, one reason. They share for one reason. I think people share because they want to connect with other people. Not to get something better. Well, that might be a, a byproduct <laughs> of the connection. Right. Um, but you think primarily it's actually a way of initiating some kind of yeah. Inter- interaction. Yeah. I, whether it's for good or for bad, people mm. want to connect. So, you know, what goes through someone's mind when they choose whether to share something or not? Like in, in, yeah. that, in that critical moment well, when, when, their, when their finger is hovering over the share button. It usually has to do with an emotion, a uh, human emotion. And it's usually, usually spurred on by joy, surprise, sadness, humor. Um, one of the many emotions, one of the six emotions that Paul Ekman wrote about, um, people will, um, will usually spring from an emotion to share and and that emotion to share isn't simply because they're interested in it it's because they want to connect with somebody else on that and they want someone else to connect back um but, but do you think selfishly that what they're thinking about is actually their own personal brand in that they're thinking if i send this out what will that person now think of me as opposed to the brand that they're sharing uh one one of the categories of people yeah i i think that um you know there's six different categories also of people that I wrote about in the book that um, share for different reasons. There's six different types of sharers. Right. And one of them is um, is a selective, and there are a lot of selectives in this world who actually don't share publicly. They're not even on Facebook still. Hmm. They're not even on Snapchat. Well, okay, a lot of people still are on Snapchat. Um, they're, they're not on a lot of these platforms. And I'm not saying that they're even older, that it's an age thing. I know people in their 20s and 30s that just choose not to be on So there's, there's stealth sharers. <laughs> there, you can call them stealth sharers, you can call them observers, you can call them lurkers. They might be on social and don't share. Right. And they might just like the fact that they can still stay in your lives and then they'll share privately. I think you're describing my mother. <laughs> yeah. She, she's learned to... Um, the best way to be friends with me on Facebook is, is to actually be so quiet that I forget that she's there. Right. <laughs> and then boom. And she brings it up right at the Offline. right moment. Offline. 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 <laughs> yeah. In front of everyone at the at your family party. That's right. Um, but here's the interesting thing. I was, uh, one of the um, one of the the uh, ideas was between the early adopter and the selective. So the early adopter is one of the six, and the early adopter is the person who shares a lot. Like they're the person who gets a new iWatch or Apple Watch um, at 12 a.m. on the right. night that it opens And films up. the unboxing video. Films the unboxing video, shares it with everyone, then looks for the next thing that they can do. Hmm. 
the selective is somebody who... So this is Robert Scoble, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, Robert would be the first to tell you. Yeah, He's an early doctor for sure. So um, then you have um, the selective, your mom, my mom, who will watch the unboxing of it. They may have bought it, but they're not going to share it. They, they are more selective about what they share because they're not exactly sure that that's the persona that they want to put out or that's not how they were raised or that's just not who they are. And they'd rather just email you or they'd rather just tell you offline or they'd rather DM you or message you on Facebook. Right. Okay, so the CMO of McDonald's was telling me about this. Um, this is a, a long, long ways back, so maybe one or two CMOs ago. was telling me about a campaign that he ran um, on online and it was to the early adopters and to the selectives and he wanted to see how far the um, sharing would go and how much um, how much ROI how much close close rates they could get uh, click-throughs they could get on on um, each from each category hmm. and and the it was it was interesting because the the um, the early adopters were um, clicking on everything liking everything but did not convert right didn't convert like there were no sales to be had there they're they actually consuming the idea of sharing as opposed to the product the product itself which is really important to think about yeah. um, as marketers our job is not working if they only share it there has to be a conversion yeah. on some level I, I think they people people in charity find this problem all the time right like people think if they like um, a video that a, a charity puts out they've actually contributed to the cause yeah yeah, if you don't get a donation, it's, it's not, nothing. It's yeah. nothing. Yeah. And then so you have the selectives, and the selectives are never sharing. And so here's the thing. When you get a selective to actually share something, it means so much more. Right. Because now that person actually spoke up about something. Now, anyone within their sphere of influence is going to take a harder look at what they just shared. Except there's one big problem with that, and okay. that's Facebook's algorithms. Yeah. Because if this person's never shared or never done anything, when they finally do something, no one's going to notice because it's not going to show up in anyone's timeline. Right. At least that's that's how it is now. That's how it is now. So if we're just simply talking about Facebook, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so with with Facebook, there's there's a an algorithm challenge there that absolutely doesn't help. Um, but if they share something and according to their algorithm they get a ton of people who start liking it ah you're right it will, get, it will then break through the, it'll break through and it'll start to rise up faster than anything else this does bring up an interesting issue because you know we've talked a little bit about the importance of humanity and and uh, i guess the psychology of sharing but you don't you can't just be an anthropologist you have to also understand the the infrastructure behind these new systems as well right right and there's like kind of a uh, an arms race in in, yeah. in, in ad tech and martech uh, yeah. behind all this. How, how do you understand how to get scale using data on these new platforms? Um, I know uh, Facebook recently made some really interesting changes we were speaking about earlier to their, yeah. the way they, they had to look like audiences. Can, can you break that down? Yeah, I don't know if I quite understand it yet either because it just came <laughs> out yesterday. Yeah. And uh, like I was saying, I didn't read through the whole thing. So I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to be as accurate here as I, I could be. Um, but um, but from what I understand, you know, everything is built, as you know, on a cookied relationship. Yeah. Um, so when somebody clicks on something, we've now trapped their their machine, that one single machine, that one single browser, and we now know when when they've returned to a number of different um, environments that 
you know, has um, has their cookie attributed or associated with that machine yeah. so that we can then track back and retarget them ads, which gives us the ability to resell um, based upon what their buying habits are or non-buying habits. Which is why when you're looking at shoes and you'll see the same ad a thousand other places. Yeah, know. which is... Creepy. Uh, creeping and annoying. And <laughs> I, I think that there's some lazy marketers out there too, yeah. probably more so than, than good marketers. Um, but... Um, but the but the the game's changing because there's some some patterns that are being created by you on different computers. So you could be on your mobile phone one day, and then you could be on your laptop the next, and then you could be on your tablet the next day. Well, by law of cookie, it only happens actually on one of those three machines. Right. But uh, they have managed to integrate, as far as I can see, their um, their out their. Uh, um, they're, tra- they're, they're able to track patterns to know that you're starting to associate with those three different um, uh, technology devices. So they, re- they can retarget you wherever, wherever you're at. So, so re- really the ad follows the identity uh, rather than that specific uh, IP address. Right. Right. Yeah. That's so interesting. And it makes you wonder, like, when you're, if you're going to design a marketing team in the future, you've obviously got to have these very emotive human-driven storytellers right but you also need these incredibly smart data-driven storytellers storytellers yeah. as well right like right. I mean are they, are they the same person <laughs> or, or are they kind of like the uh, Morlocks and uh, LOI <laughs> yeah right um, I don't know I don't know actually that's a really good question I, I don't know if I know the the answer to that I, well, in your I, own business I mean what, what what kinds of people tend to be the most effective planning great ideas for clients well uh, the the ones that are most effective I think are um, the the creative people that don't look at too much too hard at the at the data so I have friends you have friends even even I think both you and I are probably in the data quite a bit and um, and it's it's really interesting to talk with people that are in the data because they can quote and I love data, data, um, you know, scientists because they just blow my mind on on all kinds of on all kinds of levels. Um, and now with getting into things like Watson and artificial intelligence and how um, how it's going to work in the future with really um, you know understanding our habits and then you know connecting those things um, to a purchase or a buy without your consent, but foretelling like what you actually need I think is just fascinating I'm really looking forward to it I'm one of those weird nerd people <laughs> that actually looks forward to that kind of science stuff in the same respect I still think that that's not that's not what that's not what gets through to people hmm. um, that's not what um, th- that's not what moves people to um, to make a purchase I mean, you even see that some some in the U.S. election in that in the last two elections, people use data science and you yeah. know incredibly smart people, you know, to, to run all these platforms. Sure. And and I don't think Donald Trump uses any of that. He he's just using himself on the platform. There's no science at all. It's a great point. He um, he uses what what uh, so many marketing firms and and great companies use, and that storytelling and emotions. Yeah. The combination of the two is is. Is is uh, is more powerful than any amount of data that you can have. And, and whether you agree with the content or not, you can't argue with the sheer effectiveness of being able to cut through the data and science with yeah. a story that certain people want to hear. Right. 
Yeah. It's pretty interesting. We could go, we could probably have a whole another podcast on Trump. <laughs> Let's not. <laughs> Brian, it's great to see you. Great to hang out. And uh, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Excellent. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash Between Worlds.